Good morning, St Barnabas. My name is Hannah and I lead one of our newer community groups. Um, we're going through a series at the moment looking at some of the themes that come up in the Lion King film and looking at what the Bible has to say about them. And our theme this morning is temptation. So those of you who've seen the film recently will remember how Simba, the main character, how his um, evil uncle Scar lies to him and, and tells him that everybody has been to the elephant graveyard, the one place his dad has specifically told him not to go. And Simba is desperate to prove that he's as grown up as everyone else. And so he ignores his dad's advice, or his dad's boundaries even, and he convinces his friend Nala to go with him. Um, they manage to shake off their chaperone Zazi and they sneak out of the safety of the Pride Lands into the Shadowlands, where they've been told not to go. And as they're experiencing, uh, exploring this land where the, the mud is oozing up and there's these weird noises going on, Nala, Simba's friend, is, is trying to get him to come back home. But Simba is so desperate to prove how brave and how bold he is and how capable of ruling that he stays there. And they end up meeting some hyenas who almost eat them for dinner. But thankfully, Simba's dad, Mufasa, arrives just in the nick of time and uh, sweeps in and saves the cubs and gets them safely back home. Um, before we go on, I should probably explain why I'm wearing this hat. Um, I've got a bit of a confession to make, actually. Um, during lockdown, I haven't always been that great at brushing my hair. Um, and. Uh, you might even say it's, it's become a little bit of a bird's nest and um, I, I actually made some good friends during lockdown um, become really close. They, they've actually moved in um, and they do um, lay me eggs every morning but they're, yeah, they kind of keep me up at night. Um, they, they scratch a lot. Uh, yeah, they make a lot of noise. Um, and yeah, someone once said to me that uh, temptation is a little bit like a bird flying overhead. Um, you can't stop a bird flying overhead. You can't stop a thought flitting through your mind, but, but you can stop a bird making its nest in your head. And um, yeah, I'm afraid I've not really followed that advice during lockdown. Um, as you can see, a few residents have uh, taken up occupancy. Um, so we're going to be looking this morning at uh, one of the most famous stories in the Bible about temptation. It's about King David and how he has an affair with his neighbour's wife and ends up murdering him. And before we jump in, I, I want to say that I guess sexual temptation is one of the areas where we're most aware of the desires of our flesh being different from God's desires for us. But Actually, temptation isn't limited to the area of sexuality. There's so many other areas where we can be tempted to sin, which God really cares about, um, and it grieves him deeply when we go against his ways. But um, let's jump into our Bible passage for today. So it's 2 Samuel chapter 11, and I'm going to start reading from verse 1. So it says, In the spring, at the times when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed 
and walked around on the roof of the palace. Some other translations render this as late one afternoon, David got up from his couch. Anyway, from the roof, David saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her, which he probably didn't need to do because Jerusalem was quite a small town and he would have known at least whose house it was that he was looking at, probably whose wife was there. And the man David sent to find out about this beautiful woman came back to him and said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who is actually one of David's close friends, so he really should have known what was going on. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now, she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness, which means that she just had her period, which means that she definitely wasn't pregnant before she saw David. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet which apparently might be an ancient Israeli euphemism for go home and enjoy your wife. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and to make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, uh, stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among the master's servants and he did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the, the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out 
And when he arrived, he told David everything that Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, uh, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord so we see David sliding down a slippery slope here. When he sees Bathsheba bathing and that little bird of lust flies overhead, he doesn't activate his anti-missile defense systems and gun it down. Instead, he takes a step closer, sends people to find out something he probably already knew the answer to and gets involved with a married woman. Basically, he ends up raping her and in an attempt to cover up his sin, he murders her husband. But actually, I don't think David's issues begin with his lingering gaze on Bathsheba. If we look at verse 1, we see that it says, In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Although Dave, one of David's main callings as king of Israel was to lead his people into battle, here he is lazing around in the palace, having long siestas. Now, there's plenty of good reasons why a king might sometimes stay back from battle, and I'm sure David used them to justify his decision to stay home here. But the narrator is really keen that we realize that David definitely shouldn't have been at home in this instance. He really should have been off fighting with his army. However, because he's not, he finds himself in a city with lots of women, not many men and no one who can say no to him. I wonder if you've come across something called HALT, which is basically an acronym for uh, situations that can make us more susceptible to temptation. So the idea is that when we're hungry, angry, lonely or tired, we can more easily give in. Um, and I definitely find this to be true. I'm more likely to be touchy on an empty stomach more likely to judge someone when I'm angry with something they've done, more prone to look for comfort in the wrong places when I'm lonely, and more likely to say a harsh word when I'm tired. And with all of his closest friends away at war, David would have definitely fallen into the lonely category. He might not have been physically hungry in the palace, but I wonder if, as a man of war, his appetite for action and adventure was going unfulfilled. And he definitely seems like he's in a bit of a low place, wandering around aimlessly on the rooftop, um, sleeping late into the afternoon. So it seems to me that David's decision not to go to war made him more susceptible to temptation. And as I've been reflecting on this, I've been thinking about my own aversion to conflict. Some personality types are more happy to sit with conflict than others. I'm definitely on the averse end of the spectrum. Um, I saw this really clearly when I was chatting with a lady about Jesus recently and 
The friend I was with, every time this woman would say something that contradicted to the Bible, he'd argue back at her and explain why she was wrong. Whereas every time she said something that agreed with the Bible, I'd affirm her and I'd say, yes, this is what the Bible says, this is why you're right. Um, I love the Bible verses that talk about how God wants to adopt everyone into his family through Jesus. I love the peace that Jesus has brought to my own life. But Jesus also said that he didn't come to bring peace, but the sword. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that we're in a spiritual battle and we need to put on the armour of God. I'd love to think that there was a neutral ground I could stand on in life, that as long as I wasn't actively choosing evil, I'm okay. But Jesus says that he who's not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. So just like there's no neutral place with my hair, if I don't actively wash and brush it, it gets unkempt, people take, or animals take up residence. Um, there's no neutral ground when it comes to God. If we're not running towards him, we're falling away from him. As I say, looking at David's story, it seems that his problems begin when he chooses not to go to war. And I wonder if some of our own failings in overcoming temptation are a result of refusing to acknowledge that we live in a battle zone. If you were in the front lines, or if you were near the front lines in Yemen or Afghanistan, you wouldn't saunter around enjoying the sunshine. You'd be alert, you'd be watching every little movement, waiting for every little noise. Um, you'd be wearing body armour, or if you weren't, you'd be looking for it. You might have a weapon. Um, and in 21st century Cambridge, it's so easy in our relatively comfortable lives to forget that our hearts are actually spiritual battlegrounds. Whatever we allow to take root in our hearts will eventually manifest itself in actions that will impact our lives and the lives of others. So what does it look like for us to defend our hearts when there's an enemy flying around looking for a place to land? Well, practically speaking, it can um, mean avoiding putting ourselves in positions where we're hungry, angry, in a bitter sense, lonely or tired. And I want to share with you a few quick suggestions that can help both in the battle against temptation and in looking after your hair. Okay, tip one is find yourself some friends that you can be really honest and open with. Um, one of the most significant experiences in my Christian walk has been um, being part of a small group of girls a few years ago where we all shared um, really openly and honestly different sexual temptations we were struggling with. And uh, I found that as I was brutally honest with these girls and we prayed together, that God undid so much shame that was in my heart and got me out of the rut that I felt stuck in. And the amazing thing about friends is they can find the lies that have been in our head, um, keeping us trapped in sin and remove them. Okay, so tip two is regular rest. A few months ago in the evening service, we were looking at the theme of resting from busyness. And one of the surefire ways to weaken yourself in the battle against temptation is to run yourself into the ground. Are you taking time out each week to let your hair down, to step off the treadmill, and to remind yourself of God's goodness and the fact that he loves you? I find even pausing for um, 15 seconds of silent prayer before starting a task 
can really make a difference to the state of my heart. Step number three is examine and forgive. So the Bible doesn't tell us to be angry, but it does encourage us not to let a root of bitterness grow up in our hearts. And when you become aware of a knot of anger in your heart, do you bring it before God and ask what's going on? Or do you let it simmer? Um, examining our hearts at the end of the day can allow God to brush out any unforgiveness that we find and he can smooth out any anxieties and resentment that are taking root in our hearts and keep us nice and healthy. Tip number four is to eat. They say an army can't march on its stomach. Um, and there is a place for fasting in the life of Christians. But if you know that you're prone to becoming so busy that you don't have time to eat and then you go home at the end of the day really grumpy, maybe you need to change something. Even more important than physical food in the battle against temptation is spiritual food. We see this when Jesus was in the desert. He rebutted every temptation that the enemy brought against him with scripture. And to go back to the hair analogy, a way to keep your locks nice and sleek and shiny and free of birds is to use conditioner. When we use conditioner, we, we let it sit in our hair for a while so that our hair can soak up all the goodness. Um, are you taking time to marinate in God's goodness regularly? What, what are you exposing yourself to? What are you feeding on, on a heart level? So these are some of my tips for overcoming temptation. Um, but if we try and do these things in our own strength, we often end up pretty tired. And then when we know when we're tired, we often end up giving in, and then we're back at the beginning again. And so we find ourselves caught in this endless cycle going round in circles. And the Apostle Paul put it a bit like this in his letter to the Roman church. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I find that time and time again, as I come to God in humility and say, help, I can't do this, that he does come and help me. I can't explain it, but I know that as I open up my heart to him, he's changing me. He brushes out lies that were making temptation look attractive. He gives me vision of what living life in his goodness really looks like. So this is my prayer for you today that God would alert you to any battlegrounds that you're neglecting in your life and that he would show you how, together with him, you can stand firm and fight. We're going to take a moment now to pause and ask God what he's highlighting to each of us individually today. And then at the end of the service, there'll be some questions come up on the screen that you can discuss in your households or communities.